welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Your Daily Drive, and I am Rick Thomas. I'm a digital nomad. I live in cyberspace. And the great news is that you have access. If you're listening to this podcast, you have access to me. If you have a question or some way that our team can serve you, please let us know. Go to rickthomas.net. That's N-E-T. We have forums there that you can get on and ask questions. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You can read the article that I'm about to share with you also on our website. The title of this podcast and the article is The Danger of Guilt and the Need for Good Friends. I want to talk about guilt today because it is something that is ubiquitous. It is in all of our lives. We will struggle with it until we meet Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 that we'll be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. But this is the here and now, and we are fallen creatures living in fallen bodies. I hope you have been regenerated by God as I have. God regenerated me in 1984. I'm in this process called progressive sanctification, so I am not entirely sanctified. I am not perfect. Positionally, I am perfect. I have Christ's righteousness, an alien righteousness that was given to me by mercy, by grace, because of God's kindness through the gospel. But functionally, I still sin, and I struggle with guilt and You can struggle with guilt without sinning, and I want to talk about that today, the danger of guilt and the need for good friends. I want to share a story about Mabel. She struggled for many years with guilt. All of it's real. You know, sometimes people talk about true guilt and false guilt. There's something to talk about there, but to the person who is experiencing it, whether it's true or false, it is real. They are false feeling guilty, whether it's legitimate. What I mean by legitimate is God producing that guilt. Is the Holy Spirit of God convicting you and declaring you guilty because of something that you've done? Or are you doing that to yourself? Either way, it is real. And after 20 years of fighting the true and false of her guilt, right now it's so convoluted that it's hard for her to sort it out. In one sense, it It doesn't matter who did what. Is it her guilt or is it something that she is heaping upon herself? The main thing is, is that she gets help. Mabel did do some things wrong while other people did things to her. That was in her past. Mercifully, Christ rescued her and made the long-awaited, soul-refreshing declaration. Here it is. The gavel goes down. Not guilty. The Lord acquitted Mabel of her sins, and that is the good news. And I trust that is your experience. Have you been born from above? We Christians like to say born again. That's John chapter 3 verse number 7 is where Jesus talked about being born from above. Well, she was. Mabel was. She received the good news. She was declared not guilty by our sovereign divine judge. She initially felt wonderfully great about being forgiven by God, which she should. We all should. I hope you feel great that God has forgiven you and that you experience the goodness of those 
feelings of being released and set free. But in time, the old thoughts and the old patterns began to creep back into her thinking. Though she was positionally pronounced free in Christ as though she had never sinned, Mabel is practically living in a fallen body, in a fallen world. She continues to experience sin. I'm pretty sure that's your experience, too. To some degree, maybe it's not as convoluted and distressing as it is to Mabel, but we all struggle as the tentacles of sin pulls against our souls. After God regenerated Mabel, she made a few mistakes. And there were accusations hurled at her by others. The result, you put those two things together, the sins that you commit and things that people do to you, the result is ongoing problems of reverting back to the same old pattern of self-condemnation. I say self-condemnation because God does not condemn her any longer. For whom the Son has set free is free indeed. In Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Romans 8, 1, there is no more condemnation. But Mabel is habituated. She's stuck in a habit. She has a habit of condemning herself. God has declared her not guilty, but the old habits continue to trap her and keep her from living in the freedom of his declaration. Though the Lord placed all her past, present, and future sin on his son, Jesus Christ, Mabel's habituation with self-condemnation puts her on trial and under, under the perceived, self-perceived judgment of God. Again, it's not God's judgment on her. This is how she perceives herself. What's happened here is Mabel has become the judge and the jury as well as the prosecuted. She is her own prosecution team, and she's prosecuting herself. Guilty is the verdict. Mabel daily acts out what our... This is what our court system calls double jeopardy. Double jeopardy. That is a procedural defense that forbids a defendant from being tried again on the same or similar charges following a legitimate acquittal or conviction. And so here's what's happening with double jeopardy. The judge, God, has declared the defendant free, not guilty, for the crimes against him, against God. God has declared Mabel free. But, but what Mabel is doing is she's dragging herself back in the court and retrying herself over and over again. That's called double, double jeopardy, and you cannot do that. Once you have been acquitted, you can never be tried again for the same crimes. This law means you cannot retry someone twice, just to state it simply. Mabel does not know that she cannot be retried for the same thing again. Let me clarify she does know that God will not judge her, but that is not practically or functionally real to her. No, she understands the gospel. She knows she's been set free, 
but there is something inside of her that is compelling her to drag herself back into the divine courtroom and retry herself all over again. It makes it even odder because she knows the gospel, but it's not practically working out for her. Rather than taking her guilt to the Almighty Judge and receiving his full pardon, she turns back the punishment that Christ carried on to herself. She turns it back onto herself, which works out in many different behaviors. Sometimes she will escape through shopping sprees to make herself feel better. That's a way that she alleviates this guilt that she feels. Other times she will get angry at other people. This has a, a twisted and perverted way of making her feel better about herself by reminding them of their faults. What that is is self-righteousness. It's an angry heart that's motivated by self-righteousness. In her case, she wants to feel better about herself, so she steps up on a pedestal so she can look down on other people, point out their faults, become angry at them, and then, again, it's some kind of perverted relief to her soul. She also struggles with bouts of depression and unremitting despair, which is another way she manages her guilt. That's not a good management technique, by the way, but based on the convolution of her soul, this just sort of happens to her. She's depressed and despairing. All of these things, plus a few other inconsistent behaviors, make it difficult to understand what is going on with her. Guilt was never meant to be managed by fallen people. To do so is dangerous. Guilt will win the day against fallen people. We can't defeat guilt. God can. If you try to manage your guilt through some of the means that I've mentioned that Mabel is doing, or maybe you have other means that you're trying to satisfy or alleviate your guilt, you will grow tired, bitter, angry, and your relationships will suffer. There is a better way to address this problem. Let's suppose, just for sake of illustration, that you legitimately sinned. You did transgress. You crossed the line. You missed the mark. You did something wrong. There is no doubt about it. It is objective. God declares it. You are guilty as charged. I'm not talking about salvific sin, the sin of unbelief. I'm talking about the sins that we commit during our sanctification. Let's also suppose you ask God to forgive you for what you did. If you did sin and you ask God to forgive you, you are no longer guilty, period. You have been acquitted of your sin, not based on your works righteousness, but based on the works righteousness of Jesus Christ. That alien righteousness I was talking about that he gives to you when you sin as a believer, ask God to forgive you of that sin and you will be acquitted of that sin, not based on your works, but based on the works of Christ. The Savior saved you. He died on the cross for you. He took your sin so you would not have to pay for it. This is a significant, this truth is a significant piece of the gospel. You belong to him. You are in him. Christ's righteousness is your new identity. God annihilated any sin, whether it is past, present, or future, because of the punishment meted out on Christ. To come back around 
and retry yourself for a sin God has already punished and forgiven, well, it's heresy. It is not unusual to reflect back on your life through a lens of disappointment, regret, or guilt. I understand that. I, uh, God regenerated me when I was 25 years old. I, I've done, I made a whole lot of mistakes before God regenerated me, and I've made a ton of mistakes that I regret after God saved me as I look back on my life. If you live long enough, you will be disappointed. You are a fallen individual in a fallen world living among fallen people. Sin thrives in a fallen world. One of the harsher realities of life is our daily battles with disappointment. You have all been there. You have all experienced it. Sometimes the disappointment we experience comes with accompanying and compounding guilt, as I have described here with Mabel. Whenever we take a backward look and see the brokenness of various kinds, it is absolutely essential to guard your heart in those reflective moments. Even if you learn from your past, there is a temptation for lingering guilt. There is a blessing in not forgetting the mistakes that you made, but there's a line there that you don't want to cross. You want to remember the, the uh, mistakes that you made so that you can learn from them so you can use them as illustrations. I use my mistakes as illustrations to encourage other people in many different ways, like letting them know that I've been there, helping them to know that I do understand what you're going through. But there's a line there that you can cross, and it could be lingering guilt that you could stir up if you are not applying the gospel to your past mistakes as you think about them. Life is not neat enough, and you are not strong enough to control out all outcomes. Some things will be left undone, unsaid, unresolved. There'll be things in your past that just won't be tidy. There will be sin, and some of that sin will never be resolved or made right. You should do all that is re reasonably within your ability to make things right. But you also must be careful that you do not process the past pass through an unbiblical grid. Imperfect outcomes are why there is a gospel. The gospel makes right what fallen people cannot fix. A person who continues to carry guilt for things in their past has not come to terms with the dynamic power of the gospel. The gospel powerfully forgives and cleanses Christians from all sins, no matter how big or awful those sins are. Let's suppose you spanked your child for a sin he committed. I want to give you an illustration here. It would be unreasonable, illogical, and unkind to go back into his room and, and re-spank him two hours later for the same sin. God the Father executed his one and only Son on the cross for your sins and for mine. It was a divine spanking, if you will. Christ took our punishment for all our sins. If you do not live in the functional reality of this gospel truth, you'll be tempted to live in the residual condemnation of your past and present actions. This lifestyle choice is double jeopardy. It's retrying yourself for a previously resolved crime. 
I like the Charity L. Bancroft song, Before the Throne of God Above. There is one stanza that, that captures the force of the gospel while focusing your mind on its guilt-releasing truth. I'm not going to sing it to you because I don't sing well, but I'll recite that stanza. It goes like this, and you probably know it. This is Before the Throne of God Above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Typically, a guilty person who does not live in the freedom of forgiveness over struggles with their sinful actions. They have a hard time coming to terms with what they did or what someone did to them. It's not their fault in that case, but it's what someone did to them. It is like being surprised at doing something dumb when you make a mistake, when it's your fault. Have you ever done a knucklehead something and said, I can't believe I did that? If so, that is the idea that I'm communicating. The truth is you did do that dumb thing. It is common for humans to do ignorant things. Our problem is we're not comfortable with accepting the reality of how we came into the world fallen, Adamic. The Bible doctrine is total depravity. R.C. Sproul defined human depravity this way. He said total depravity means that I and everyone else are depraved or corrupt in the totality of our being. No part of us is left untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words, do sinful deeds, have impure thoughts. Our very bodies suffer from the ravages of sin. That's R.C. Sproul on human depravity. If you are surprised at doing something dumb, you genuinely do not understand yourself or total depravity. We do foolish things because Adamic fallenness messed us up completely. That's my way of saying total depravity messed us up completely. It will always be hard to embrace forgiveness if at some level of your heart you are shocked, surprised, and unwilling to embrace the full dumbness of who you are. Sadly, the self-esteem culture has nearly taken over our Christian worldview to the point that we become overly surprised at some of the things we do. It is hard for proud people to fully accept who they are and to fully live in the freedom Christ offers through his punishment on the cross. The Pharisees could never come to terms with the death of Christ. They chose to pay for their sins through their works rather than his. Well, guess what? Mabel is doing a similar thing. She truly believes the gospel. And she is genuinely grateful for the gospel, for what Christ has done. As I said earlier, she is not unaware. She is very much aware that she has been set free for freedom. Christ has made her free. She understands that. But even after her prayerful conversations with the Lord, she leaves those settings carrying part of the guilt that she confessed to him. There's something functionally broke inside of her, broken inside of her soul. She cannot leave it at the throne of God. Like what the, the song says, Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Well, Mabel cannot do that.
She can't leave it there. And while she would counsel others to leave theirs there, she continues to cling to hers. And she lives in a low-grade self-punishment mode for her past actions. By continuing to carry her guilt, she's trying to make atonement for her sins, albeit unwittingly. Now please understand the, the irony, the contradiction, and that's why I say she's doing this unwittingly. Because she knows the gospel and she understands that she can't pay for her sin or that she should carry her guilt. It's important that we understand the shaping influences that have been in our lives that shape us so powerfully and profoundly that the residual effect of those shape, those horrible negative shaping influences, predominantly from authority figures in our lives, has that residual effect long after God regenerates us, and that's part of Mabel's problem. It is her atonement that she is using, plus Christ's atonement. Do you see the problem? It is one act punished twice. Twice. Christ has been punished, and, and Mabel is continually punishing herself. Unresolved guilt is the act of beating oneself up on an ongoing basis for some shameful deed. There is seemingly a limitless number of ways in which guilty hearts will seek to atone for the wrong things they have done. Mabel would go and buy herself something to make herself feel better. At other times, she would be critical, angry, condemning of her friends, which was another way of feeling better. She also lived in a secret and delusional world of self-condemnation. Her friends were not aware of this. They knew something was wrong with her. They knew she was insecure. They knew she had issues. They, they knew there were some levels of dysfunction there, but they did not know this, this underworld that was in her soul. And it's why I titled this podcast, The Danger of Guilt and the Need for Good Friends. Mabel needs some good restorers coming alongside her. While the self-atoning guilty person feels awful for what she did, Mabel is not processing it through a biblical framework. Mabel cannot get out of this cycle of sin. She sins. She commits some sin. Guilt. Punishment. She's punishing herself. Despair. Anger. Sin. Guilt. Ad infinitum. She does it all over again, the cyclic effect of self-atonement. She is sin-centered, always carrying the rocks of her past actions in her pocket. Her strongest temptation is to fight this internal battle alone. See, here's the thing. When you are self-condemning yourself and feel that level of insecurity, there is a strong temptation to back yourself in a corner, to tell yourself lies, I am the only one. I can't let anyone else know. I don't want anybody else to condemn me or to think harshly of me. And so her strongest temptation is to fight this internal battle by herself. That approach is like a blind man groping for the walls, trying to figure out how to turn, the, turn on the lights. It is not supposed to be this way. Think about this. When Philip asked the Ethiopian if he understood what he was reading in Acts 8.31, the Ethiopian replied back that he could not understand Isaiah 53. That is the text that the Ethiopian was reading. 
He said, somebody needs to help me. Think about that for a minute. The Ethiopian had the word of God in his lap. The spirit of God was there, but he could not figure out what he was reading. A blind man in a dark world needs help finding the light. The one thing Mabel was missing, though she had the word of God and she had the spirit of God, was a caring individual walking her through what she could not see. She was in a trap, and she could not get out of it. Now, please do not hear what I am not saying. God's Word is all-sufficient. The Spirit of God is all-powerful, all-able. But the way sanctification takes place is through the Word of God, and in many situations, that works and that gets the job done. In other situations, the Spirit of God penetrates our hearts, illuminates our minds, motivates us to change, or the Spirit of God interacts with the Word of God and change happens, but sometimes it is necessary, maybe more times than you realize, for the community to get involved with an individual who is stuck and Mabel is stuck, a Christian who loves God's Word, who does not want to grieve or quench the Spirit of God. And that's one of the reasons we have those one another's in the New Testament. Let me share one with you about an incarcerated person, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught, if anyone is incarcerated, if anyone is trapped in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who have the Spirit, come alongside that individual and restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. And by the way, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I love that last sentence there because Paul understands that you can be so easily tempted when you're working with a person who's caught in a bear trap. Mabel is caught, and she may bite you as you move in to try to bring compassionate care to her. Mabel and the Ethiopian in Acts 8.31 are like the rest of us. Sometimes it's just not possible to extricate ourselves from some of the traps we find ourselves. For Mabel, she needs a competent and compassionate restorer. That's what Paul said, restore them. Cartetizo, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. She needs a friend to pull her out of her incarceration. Here's my recommendation for Mabel or anyone like Mabel. Find yourself a friend, someone that you can be honest with about your internal struggles. Now, if you are the friend, here's what I recommend to you. That as you restore Mabel, the Mabel in your life, that you do so in a spirit of gentleness while keeping watch on your soul. So you do not be tempted to sin against her while serving her, especially if she bites you. Insecure people, self-condemned people can be highly reactionary and defensive. And the anger that they lash out at you is all they know. And so you want to be very careful, like what Paul said. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let the spirit of gentleness drive you as you keep watch on your soul so that you do not become tempted. 
while you're serving her. With the help of the Word of God, with the help of the Spirit of God, with the help of the community of God, Mabel should be able to live in the practical reality of that beautiful Bancroft song before the throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. If you are a Christian, all of your sin has been punished in the divine court of law. It would be double jeopardy to go back into that courtroom and try yourself all over again. You're not in the courtroom anymore. You're in the living room with your father. He is your heavenly father, and he does not condemn you. You can take all of your sins to him and experience the freedom, the power, the graciousness of God's forgiveness. Now, perhaps you are stuck like Mabel, and you need a friend. And as you listen to this podcast, you say, Rick, that sounds nice, but I don't have a friend. Well, you're listening to one. Go to rickthomas.net. It won't cost you a dime. Jump on our forums. Ask your question. Say, hey, I listened to this podcast about the danger of guilt and the need for good friends. I'm in a dangerous place. I don't have a good friend. Can I share with you? Of course you can. Tell us all about it, and it would be a joy to serve you. Thanks for listening. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.